1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program. I'm Paul Spataro, and once again, I have Mr. Blaine Dowler here with me for our look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Thanks for coming back again, Blaine. Oh, thanks for having me again. It's hard to believe two weeks has gone by, isn't it? It feels like just minutes. <laughs> it really does. Uh, as anybody who listens would recall, two weeks ago we covered phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, leaving off with Marvel's The Avengers. And at this point, I think as we had kind of gone through, Marvel had solid footing, had a definite reputation, uh, had built up a lot of goodwill, and we're ready to go into phase two. Now, I wonder, and I don't really know the answer to this question, so this is truly speculation or asking for speculation, because I'm not even sure if I have an opinion on it, is how much had Marvel really planned beyond the Avengers when they made the Avengers, or when they started to make the Avengers? Uh, you know, I'm sure they, you know, they knew, okay, if these movies are successful... You know, we will have sequels to Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, and the Avengers. Uh, but I don't know how much they, beyond the fact that, you know, yes, we're going to have sequels, I don't know how much they had thought out as far as world building goes. And I think to some extent, early in this phase, uh, certainly the first two movies, I think you see more self-contained movies that are less world building because I'm not sure that they knew where they were going to go. Would you tend to agree with that? Cause I'm kind of thinking this out loud and kind of thinking about it as I'm saying it, as opposed to having some sort of preconceived notion as to where this is. Yeah. I think in broad strokes, they clearly had to know that they were building to Thanos. But aside from that, I think they had a lot of flexibility on the path to get there. Well, we ended the Avengers with the, uh, with, with the, uh, teaser of Thanos. So there's no question mm -hmm. that they had done that. And, and, and 
I remember at the time when it first came out, we talked about it on Back to the Bins, and Mike Bailey had speculated that it was masterful by Marvel because not only did they set up Thanos as a potential future villain, they've also backed DC a little bit into a corner that if they go to use Darkseid, the general public perception would be, look, they're ripping off Marvel's ideas. Yeah, because that happens. Look at the way John Carter was received. Uh, that's To me, that's, that's one of the... Uh, cinematic sins because uh, I, I enjoy that movie i thought that was it's not i'm not going to go as far as to say it's a great movie because i don't think it was great but i think it was a very good movie and i think it deserved much better than what it got yeah i honestly i, I bought it but i haven't gotten around to watching it yet but it's i just cited as one where people say yeah it's derivative we've seen it all before and it's like well yeah but you've seen it all before it only feels derivative because you don't you weren't reading the books in the order they came out and realized this is where it starts. Like, yeah, exactly. When, I, when these stories were written, this, this, this was the said the first. Who said, uh, Lord of the Rings was a, a, a good fantasy, but it's like every other fantasy I've ever seen. Have you read the books? No. Do you know when they were published? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's just it's mind-boggling when you think about it. But, you know, I understand if you're taking source material that's old, but you're producing it now you are going to be looked at through a different lens. So, you know, that that is a factor. But I, I don't want to go too far afield on that because we could do a whole podcast on that. Uh, we'll take ourselves into the Marvel Phase 2. Uh, this this should be, I guess, a relative, relatively brief episode because we don't have as much to cover. But I think trying to do Phase 2 and 3 together would be too much, or even Phase 1 and 2 together would be too much. So we got Phase 2 as a standalone here. Uh, The first one out uh, is Iron Man number 3, or Iron Man 3. And I could tell you I walked out of the movies a little disappointed with this. And I've mentioned this many times, that I walked out disappointed. Not that I thought it was terrible, but that it just didn't live up to the level that I had become accustomed to. Uh, and yet, when I did review it on uh, at, on home video, I had a much higher opinion of it than I did when I saw it in the theater. And the same holds true for the next movie in our series, but we'll get to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. What was your yeah, I, initial take actually, on this? Well, I walked out of Iron Man 3 thinking that was the best of the Iron Man films. Did you? I, okay. So yeah, why, don't you, why don't you give me a little really insight into that? What did you base that on? Um, I like the fact that you know, what Tony experienced in the Avengers should have been a a major wake-up call for him and so much farther beyond everything else. And yet so many times in stories like that, well, that's it. And, you know, they talk about it. It was a good time, but they don't talk about it in the ramifications. I mean, the last few minutes of that movie, Tony was expecting to give his life to save the world. He, that's not something he would do lightly. He, he's going through the stress. And when it comes out, that stress has a psychological impact as it would. And I like the fact that that was addressed. I also really like that the handling of Rhodey. We see just how capable Rhodes is. Like when they finally crack the suit because it's hot, he comes out of that alive and literally kicking and fighting his way free. And I got to be honest, I'm not as troubled by their take on the Mandarin as a lot of people are. He, he's not even remotely the Mandarin in the comics, so I get why that would frustrate people, but my reading of Iron Man comics is limited enough that the only Mandarin issues I've read 
are the ones from the 1960s that are not racially sensitive in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> They're not an accurate depiction of Asian cultures. They're an accurate depiction of the way Asian cultures were depicted in the 1930s movie serials. So when that's the only Mandarin I knew, I welcomed an update. I would have preferred it if he wasn't played by a British guy. Right? They, they could have at least found an Asian actor to play him. But I, I was totally okay with them jettisoning or jettisoning the racist portrayal of the Mandarin that I was familiar with. I'm assuming that has been improved in the intervening decades, and I just need to read more Iron Man to see that. But given that that was my my experience and still is, it's like, yeah, I am. I'm totally good with that rewrite. Now, now on the Mandarin part of it because i do think it's worth mentioning that is i i was a little disappointed that they turned the character who at least at one time had been iron man's arch enemy uh into a little bit of a joke and and i think they did it because of exactly uh you know reasons that you've hinted to there that you know the character as originally portrayed was very racially insensitive uh you know kind of like the stereotype of you know fu manchu uh but I do think that they matured the character as time went on, to, to at least some extent. At least that's not my impression of it. It's been a while since I've read anything where he's been featured. Uh, and I think you could have certainly matured it a little bit in the uh, showing here. Uh, what I liked was retroactively they kind of fixed the making a joke of him. Uh, I don't remember which... I don't remember exactly when it came, but there was the, the short... I think it was called All Hail the King. I think so, uh, yeah. And what they did was they let us know there is a real Mandarin out there, and he's a mysterious figure with a lot of power and a lot of followers, and that he didn't appreciate <laughs> the the fact that he was uh, being treated as a little bit of a joke by uh, by by uh, you know the the people who were who were portraying him in this movie. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and that's all you had to do. You don't ever have to show me the character. You don't ever have to risk the fact that you might offend somebody uh, by making him too Asian or making him too stereotypically Asian. Excuse me. Let's say that the right way. Or making him not Asian enough and, you know, then whitewashing him. Uh, you don't have to do any of that. You can, you can leave the character as one we've never seen. I would not be adverse to them having him some as somebody who is manipulating things behind the scenes in future movies, but who we never actually meet. I, I don't yeah. think that's necessarily a problem. Or if you do want to have him as somebody we meet, just you know, really sit down and, and figure out a way to present the character where he's just not going to be offensive. There's no reason he can't have an Asian power base because mm -hmm. that's part of the world. Last I heard. Uh, but just don't, you know, don't turn him into the the guy with the long, skinny mustache that goes down to his chest, uh, you know, uh, and and you know, uh, in, incredibly yellow, <laughs> uh, and and speaking with you know an an American accent or a Chinese accent or Asian accent, saying American things, you know, where you got the, uh, you know, the the, the very bad scripting. Uh, there's there's ways of doing it. Is my is, is my point. I don't know if I'm getting that across well. Yeah, it's if it makes any sense, you you want a great villain who is Asian, not an Asian villain. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I've often said that uh, when people try, and this is an area where I'm getting into sensitive things, so I have to word my word my thoughts carefully. When people try to make movies and present 
different types of characters in an effort to diversify, but go out of their way to present that character as such, instead of presenting a character who just happens to be whatever that is. I think that's a trap that they fall into, uh, and I think it makes sometimes for bad filmmaking, and I think sometimes it makes for offensive filmmaking to the point not where you're offending that culture, but you start pandering to the culture. And I think that's offensive just from a point of view of, let's not pander, let's just try and make good movies and be smart about how we present different cultures. I hope I'm saying that in a way that makes sense and is not offensive to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's... The Mandarin has potential to be a great villain, and honestly, I was expecting um, the the villain from the first Iron Man who ended up with the, the scars on his face, who was running the camp, the leader of the Ten Rings, I was the guy... I was expecting him to grow into the role of the Mandarin after the first Iron Man movie. Mm-hmm. Just because his yeah, that's what I thought as well. The Ten Rings. I thought so that as I, well. Yeah, I think that goes back to what you were saying. Where yeah, maybe they didn't have phases two and three that thoroughly planned after phase one, and that could just be because the first two Iron Man movies were by Jean Favreau, and if he had done Iron Man three, that may be exactly the direction they went. He may have been deliberately setting that up. But Iron Man three was written and directed by Shane Black, co-written by Drew Pierce, Shane Black's first major hit was writing the original lethal weapon but when favreau opted out of iron man 3 robert Downey jr suggested shane black because he had such a good experience working with him on kiss kiss bang bang which is another movie i quite enjoyed which is on my dvr now at uh dave weeder's suggestion because i've never seen it so okay i will be watching that at some point in the not too distant future um yeah, I, yeah, you know, I think. You, but don't watch with the kids. Oh, yeah, okay, fair enough. Well, my kids aren't that young, so they could they could watch anything anyway. Uh, okay. I watch Game of Thrones with my son. He's twenty one years old. <laughs> We're good. Okay. Um, but uh, the I guess my biggest problem with this movie is I really didn't appreciate Guy Pierce as the main villain, um, and I thought they went to extremists too quickly. I think there's a, a pretty rich Iron Man lore out there. And I don't think you needed to go, you know, I don't think you needed to advance it so quickly. Now, I don't know how many Iron Man movies they would or will be able to make, but I don't know. I just felt like, I feel like sometimes they're in such a rush to get out, to, to get the continuity up to current day that I have an issue with it. Yeah, that that may be the case. I mean, there's there's room for armor wars. There's There's definitely room for Demon in a Bottle. And they seem to have been building towards that. I wonder if it's almost... I, I wonder if they haven't gone that route because Robert Downey Jr. is not necessarily on board with telling that story at this point in his life. And yet he did do the scene that we talked about earlier where he was drunk at the party and you know, mm-hmm. doing behaving in an, an irresponsible way for somebody with the uh, armor. Yeah, I mean, we, we can see them skirting it. I, I know he's not prepared to talk about his past any more than he already has, and I, I can't blame him for. If you've got a miserable chapter in your history, you're not necessarily going to want to relive it every time you do an interview, when you do as many interviews as he does. But I can also see whether it would be good for his health to put himself back in that headspace to film a movie that deals with that that topic. You know, he's... He could... I, I believe he would nail it, because it, it's so personal for him, but 
it could be very rough for him to do. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I don't think they necessarily have to do that. Or I think there's ways of doing it where you don't necessarily have to make that the primary storyline. I think they kind of, like I said, they touched on it in that scene in more or less a comedic way. And I think that may be the, the negative about it is they did it comedic mm-hmm. instead of making it more serious. Uh, but I, I remember the storyline when, when Demon in the Bottle became big. Not only was he having those issues, but I guess it was Stain came up with a way of remotely manipulating his armor and had him had the armor kill a, a foreign uh, diplomat. And Iron Man, you know, it, for all intents and purposes, it appeared Iron Man had done it. And I remember that storyline being pretty intense uh, for the day. And I, I think you could have gone somewhere with that with ne- without ma- necessarily making it a full-out demon-in-the-bottle story. Yeah, there, there's definitely great ground to mine, and that is one of the major Iron Man stories. Now, at this, at this juncture, I had a, a kind of a misunderstanding as where where the plan was for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because I thought before we got to Thanos that we were going to get to a uh, Masters of Evil storyline. I thought Phase 1 was going to be Nick Fury gathering the heroes to create the Avengers, and Phase 2 was going to be the villains gathering for an ultimate showdown in Avengers 2. Uh, and, I, you know, that's probably a little bit more predictable than what they did. Uh, so I don't know that that's necessarily a good idea. But I would love to see something where you had, you know, the Red Skull and... Uh, Loki and you know different characters all together to face off against the Avengers. Yeah, that definitely has potential. Um, we're not in the position to do that now. Maybe that'll be Phase Five or, yeah, or Phase know. Four. Yeah, we will see. I don't know. You know, I don't know where we're going. Uh, you know, one of one of the dangers of of these movies is you know production on movies takes time. So these char- these actors can't help but age as these things are going on and you know as, as much as robert downey is beloved in the role he's about my age uh and he's not going to be a, you know uh, young enough to play iron man forever uh, so you wonder you know at what point does it end uh you know do they do they kill him i think there's a decent chance where they will you know we're getting way ahead of ourselves but i think there's a decent chance where they will kill off his character in endgame uh, but I don't believe that's the end of Tony Stark in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think either they will, you know, as they do in the comics, they will find a way to revive the character. This is my prediction, and I'm getting, again, way ahead of myself. myself. But when they revive him, will it be with an understanding that Robert Downey Jr. is too old to play the part now, so we're going to have somebody else play it? Will it be a rebooting of the Marvel Cinematic Universe down the line somewhere? I don't know. But... Uh, you know, at some point, there is going to be a point where Robert Downey can't play that part anymore and where Chris Hemsworth can't play Thor and Chris Evans can't play Captain America. It's going to happen. It's uh, just a matter of how it's dealt with and when it's dealt with. Uh, I haven't checked it myself, but I have heard rumors from a fairly reliable source that if you go through the contracts, the characters who survived Avengers Infinity War are played by actors who have one movie left in their contracts. I've heard the same thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean they can't sign a new contract. Yeah, and some of them have, and that could be, it could be deliberately doing it that way, where, you know, so that it's leaving the door open to kill any or all of them and not have cases like Spider Man where people are going, yeah, we know how many movies he signed for, he'll be back. 
But again, that's more phase three talk. Phase two. Yeah, back uh, to phase two. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Iron on a whole, Iron Man. <laughs> just, just like I said, on a whole, mm-hmm. I enjoyed this much more in reviewing than I did in an, the initial viewing. Just like I said. Um, now I am scheduled to watch this again as the next part of my Marvel Cinematic Universe review, which uh, by the time you hear this, that will be behind me. So, uh, but I'm looking forward to watching it again. In the budget on this was 178 million, so it went down a little bit from the Avengers, about 30 million less. Uh, the U.S. and Canada gross was healthy, 409 million dollars. The overseas was 805 so we're back up at a billion dollars again 1.2 billion dollars uh and this was not considered a huge success uh so i guess that we were back to you know expectations being a little too high and i think that might be the reason why it wasn't as successful critically with the fans not necessarily the critics i don't know what the critics thought of it but with the fans was everybody wanted to continue the Avengers and they wanted to see that go on. And I think, you know, this doesn't really do that. It does have some plot points that go forward, but it doesn't really do that. It gets an 80% uh, success rate on uh, Rotten Tomatoes uh, and 62 on Metacritic. So it was successful overall. And like I said, I think it's a good solid movie, but on initial viewing, I had a level of dis- excuse me disappointment with it. Then we went to Thor The Dark World, and I'll tell you, this one to me is the weakest of my Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. I think it is a little bit of a misstep, although I had a similar experience. I saw it in the movies, a little disappointed, saw it at home, liked it a lot more. Uh, I think a lot of the the negative on it is it is a fairly dark movie. Uh, it's Some of the comic beats... The comic relief beats don't hit as well as they did in the first movie. I think the character of Darcy, who was uh, engaging and funny in the first movie, is kind of annoying in this one. And uh, I think the villain was severely underplayed. Uh, you had Christopher Eccleston as the uh, as the dark elf, and I think he's a good actor who was totally hidden in the role, and you never really got to see him do any acting to speak of. So I think that's where it kind of failed a little bit. But again, watching it at home, I enjoy it much more than I did in the movies. Yeah, I had a similar experience. And this, I don't know how much of the, the issues were with this were because of the production stuff. Because they they went through multiple directors after production began. So there, there, there were you know directors and director teams that were fired during pre-production and then fired again early in production before Alan Taylor came in to finish the job. So, you know, how much of this would have been better? I, I agree that Christopher Eccleston is a great actor. When you give him something to work with, he had nothing to work with here. Yeah, exactly. I think he was, he was wasted. There was no point in hiring an actor of his caliber to play this role when I could have done it. And for a yeah. lot less money. Yeah, I mean, he's he was a good doctor when that you know he was the doctor that was the doctor in the reboot in mm-hmm. when to, Doctor Who came back in two thousand five. But this it, it felt a little like that first GI Joe movie where it was perfect casting when they put him in as Destro and then they didn't do anything with him. Yes, exactly. So you know that that was it was it was 
it was as big a misstep as the Marvel Cinematic Universe has had, although I admit they haven't had any huge missteps. Yeah. Again, I, I still enjoy this movie. I, if I'm flipping through the channels, it's on, I stop. I don't say, oh, it's that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I still enjoy it, and I still watch it. Uh, I, I am engaged by uh, Chris, Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth's performance, and even more so by Tom Hiddleston's. I thought this is the one where he really just kind of took command of the screen a little bit. And and I I assume that's a little bit of acknowledgement by the producers and the writers seeing how well he did in the first one and knowing the popularity that he as an actor and and that this character has gained uh, and and playing on that a little bit because you know we we do have we do see a little bit more of that him and Thor are frenemies kind of thing you know they they acknowledge their their bond as brothers uh, they can work together but. They cannot totally trust each other, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I really enjoy that dynamic, and I think that was played with very well, and that's one of the things that I think has played better at home uh, as opposed to when I saw it in the movie theater, and I don't know if that's just because I'm more familiar with it and I can see the, the more subtle performances aspects, or if it's just uh, that on the small screen it just plays better. I'm not sure. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite moments in it is after... Uh, after their mom gets killed and they show Loki, you know, pretending to be his regular self. And then you see the real him just kind of like totally in squalor, uh, you know, that, that it truly did hurt him very deeply that she got killed. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, I, you know, there's, there's aspects of that, that, that are, you know, just, I think very well played in this movie. And it, it's because it's the lower level of the Marvel cinematic universe. I think it takes a little bit of a bum rap and is not appreciated as much as it could be. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Cause it's, it's not my pick for the bottom. Like we said, that's Iron Man too, but th- this might be the film one notch above it. Mm-hmm. I, I'd have to think hard to see if I would put anything in between those two. Then we go from there to a movie that is number one on a lot of people's lists for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I think uh, you know you can make a very viable argument that it is the best. Uh, you know whether or not it's best on your list, it certainly fits the description. Uh, is Captain America: The Winter Soldier, uh, and and a lot of that is I think you you could credit the fact that uh, it kind of changed the genre a little bit it, it's still a superhero movie and it's still got the action parts to it but it's also a political intrigue and espionage story that we hadn't seen before and they're showing us we can do different things with these characters and these movies and still have them be part of the same universe and i think they also embraced the universe a little bit by having the black widow as such a significant character in this movie and nick fury as such a significant character so I, I just think this one is all around just a great movie, uh, and it's it's very very high on my list. If you know, it it may not be number one, but it's very high. It is, and if you were watching Agents of Shield at the time, it was very big as well. Um, this was the first season of Marvel's Agents of Shield on TV, and if you're watching that one in order, there is no question whatsoever about where this movie goes. It fits in between the episode that came before and the episode that came after. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I am one of the people that puts this at number one for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They just, I, I thought they nailed it. Like you said, they're, they're pushing boundaries. They got this is one of the most complex storylines because of the political intrigue. There's that 
amazing elevator scene that they used as as a trailer for it, and deservedly so, when you know that you know the, the powers that be are not happy with the fact that Captain America is going to take a stand against what they're doing. And person after person comes in the elevator, and Steve Rogers is looking around, and he knows what they're there for. And, you know, 20 huge guys in the elevator, all after Captain America. And his response is, if any of you want to get off now, this is your last chance. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the way he delivered the line, but it's just, it's just the way he's like, I've got this. You guys don't know what you're getting into. I am going to do what I need to do. Yeah, oh, it's so well done. I do think we see an element of, again, of Chris Evans's ability as an actor in this movie because he does go through a tremendous emotional arc uh, with his best friend and everything that's going on with it. Uh, and there's a lot of non-action scenes in this that just play very well and just things, you know, where he needs to be stoic. There's scenes where he's got to be emotional. I think we see a lot from him. Uh, Sebastian Stan, who I was totally unfamiliar with before the first Captain America movie. Uh, you know, he does does a really good job of just being threatening as the Winter Soldier, but also, you know, where you start to understand what's going on with his character. Uh, and, and again, the, the political subtext and intrigue that's going on is just all really well played. Uh, biggest disappointment for me, and this is an extreme nitpick, uh, the character or the actor that had played Crossbones should just be physically bigger than Captain America, and he's not. Yeah, I can see that. Honestly, my biggest nitpick was that the the Winter Soldier stopped using his mask after Steve knew who he was when the Winter Soldier didn't know Steve would know who he was. That's a choice designed to keep the audience in suspense, and it doesn't make sense in the character universe at all. Yeah, I'll grant you that. It's 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 not something that really even bothered me. Even knowing it, I'm, I'm okay with it, but I do get your point, uh, and I wouldn't wouldn't argue with you on it. Uh, yeah, but just, and again, just, it's a nitpick. Now, from a uh, box office point of view, we had a budget of $177 million, so we're still, you know, I mean, these are not cheap movies by any stretch, but we're still in, you know, the kind of in the same range. We haven't dramatically maneuvered off of that yet. Uh, the domestic gross was 200 and, almost $260 million. Uh, and then again, worldwide now we're at 455 million. So we're seeing significant foreign dollars on these movies. And yeah. clearly, clearly Marvel is, you know, is aware of this. And I, I'm sure the advertising campaigns overseas, uh, in whatever markets are big for that dollar amount. I'm sure the marketing is, is big there. Mm-hmm. I know, I know one source of income that's, huge in movies is China. Uh, And I only have a very limited understanding of it, but I think they only allow a certain number of foreign American movies a year. 12. Yeah. And you have to, so you have to really, you know, first of all, you have to get onto that list and then you have to market it there. And, but then I think if you can do that successfully, um, I you know then then there's there's a lot of money to be made and just going backwards a little bit, my understanding is that uh, they did a lot of little tinkering with Iron Man three, in order to make it more successful in China, and I guess that might be a a big reason for the fact that there was an eight hundred ninety five million overseas uh, take on that one. Yeah, that and coming right off the Avengers because for some people like your daughter 
the first Avengers was their jumping on point for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. It it was riding that wave. So now we're, we're, we're doing really well with the universe in general and Marvel took, I think, actually, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I think I know where you're going, but before we move on, I just want to point out Captain America, the winter soldier was the first movie directed by the brother team, Anthony and Joe Russo. Mm -hmm. Those are significant names going forward. Yes, absolutely. They, they're going to have a, a lot to say on what goes on in the future in Marvel, uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, at least. Actually, and you know what's funny, just to, to diverge for a second, uh, they're going to have a lot to do with what goes, what goes on in Marvel, too, because it has definitely become the tail wagging the dog, because the cinematic adventures have a tremendous influence on what we see in the comic books now, because yeah. that's the public perception of who these characters are. You know, there's a lot more people who have seen these characters in the movies than have read them in the comic books at this point. So if you want to appeal to a broader audience, you're going to give them in the comic books what they know to be that character. So yeah. we, we, are, also... we are seeing that, although they did make a you know tremendous effort to be as true to the comic books as they could in a real world setting. Yeah, and we also have the case where the comic book creators see these movies Walk out going, that was amazing, and they're inspired to tell stories that jump off the movie stories. Yeah, that's so, true, too. You so. get just a natural feedback loop there. So some of the similarities we're seeing now are not editorial mandates. Some of them some of them are. Like the, the new Nick Fury that looks more like Samuel L. Jackson than the old Nick Fury, the renaming of the Infinity Gems to Infinity Stones. I'm sure that's a conscious editorial driven effort to line things up with the movies. Yeah. There's no but question others... that we went, we went from David Hasselhoff to Samuel L. Jackson based on editorial mandate. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and you know what? They did so in a very clumsy manner, but they're there. So once you're there, I don't know if you, are you familiar with that story at all? How they did it? I think it was battle lines. I think that's the name of the story. It was a mini series where Nick Fury yeah. that we know and love for years and years and years finds out he has an illegitimate son, with an African-American woman, so it's a dark-skinned son who happens to look just like Samuel L. Jackson. And I don't remember who he came up against. I'm tempted to say Baron Strucker, but I'm not really sure. Uh, And he kidnaps young Nick Fury, who goes by a different name, but then adopts his dad's name in tribute to him. Uh, And that character says, you don't look much like your father, and he plucks out his eye and says, now you look more like him. Yeah, and... That character's best friend was nicknamed Cheese, and we find out in issue six that he's actually his real name is Phil Coulson. Yeah, it it was clumsy. It was it was a clumsily written story, but it did get them to the to, to the status quo of the movies. Yeah, it it was a little bit rushed, and you know, not necessarily on the part of the writer, because this is one of those cases where editorial handed the writer the outline he was conforming to, and he had to try to make it work. I don't even remember who has the writing credit on it. but I don't recall either. And, and I remember reading it because I was so curious how they were going to get there. Uh, and But, but you know, I, I was disappointed with the ultimate execution of it. Yeah. All right. So I think from there you were saying something about how, yeah, we'd had a, all these stories we'd seen well, Midgard and seen alternate universes or planets with Thor the Dark World. So we're definitely getting a, a bigger picture of the universe up to this point and the multiverse. Yes, definitely. Uh, and, but, you know, I, like I said, I think that, that Marvel had had enough success at this point uh, that they decided, and, and 
again, you you got to always factor in timing on this. I don't know when they decided to make the leap. Obviously, they decided before Winter Soldier came out. Uh, I'm thinking when they went into Phase 2, they kind of had an idea of where they were going when they started producing movies. I don't know if they when they ended Phase 1 if they knew. But by the time they started producing movies for Phase 2, I think they did. Uh, and they went to... Uh, they went to uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, of all things. Uh, and uh, so they, uh, you know, they took a chance on these characters that had been well-written. And mostly I would attribute that to, uh, was it, I'm trying to think of what, what the uh, writers' names were. The ones who wrote uh, Annihilation. Uh, oh, well, yeah, Annihilation was, the first Annihilation um, was not Abbott and Lanning. They were... They did some of the miniseries there, oh, okay. and then took off in the cosmic universe um, because the the writer who was behind Annihilation uh, ended up getting tapped by DC and jumping over to work on Fifty Two, and I can't believe I'm blanking on his name now as well because he's a big name. <laughs> yes, I, and I can't think of it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, it's the Abbott and Landing interpretation of Guardians of the Galaxy that came out of Annihilation Conquest, and and the one that they wrote was very much the inspiration for this. So we're, we're talking about a series that lasted, I want to say, 25 issues. Nova was 36, because they, they had a story to tell, but they wrapped up with the Thanos imperative. And when that was done, they were done with the characters, and Marvel looked at that and said, yeah, you know what? We're going to let them rest for a while. And it wasn't until this movie came out that they brought them back. Uh, I believe Brian Michael Bendis was writing that relaunch, Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and I did not care for Bendis' take on Guardians. I started reading it and quickly lost interest in it. But the characters had come together in the Annihilation series. Uh, I think the Bendis version of it might even post-date this movie. I'm not sure about the timing of it. Uh, but they came out with Guardians of the Galaxy. I remember when they announced it, there was a tremendous amount of uh, just negative... Not negative that people said this is going to suck, but just people being incredulous that this was their choice. People who were familiar with the characters were just shocked that Marvel would take the chance on these characters. Uh, I know this one I had seen not on opening night. I had seen it the first weekend on the Sunday night. Uh, and all I, all I can tell you is I saw it with... There were four of us that went to see it. I was the only one who had any familiarity with any of the characters. I loved it, and so did they. So it, it just shows you that in the execution, they really put it together so that somebody who's familiar with the characters would enjoy this take on them, but somebody who wasn't wouldn't feel off-put by it. And when you consider the world that they're creating or the world that they're expanding to uh, in this movie, that's a monumental task. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think you know introducing Groot and Rocket Raccoon and for that matter, even Drax, although they did totally change his origin on what we knew from the comics. But oh, just, yeah. just introducing them to the, to the world uh, in mass, uh, that's a tremendous risk. Oh, yeah. There, there's no question that this was a huge risk for Marvel. And they, they, if this had been their first movie, I, I think it would have been respected critically. It would not have been the phenomenon it was if it didn't already have the built-in audience that... Avengers in Phase One had built in, and I recall this one coming out coming out of the movies. People were uh, were lauding this as 
the movie for a new generation to give them their version of Star Wars when they grow up. And, and yeah. that's 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 pretty dramatic praise, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, you know. Yeah, and it it very much is, and I can see I can see a lot of that. But in the past, we've talked about how your impressions of something will depend on your expectations going in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I we've think discussed it may have that. Been a, yeah, I think this may have been a little bit overpraised because everyone's expectations were so much lower for this than they had been for anything since really the first Iron Man. And the fact that James Gunn nailed it, like, I mean, Kevin Feige knew they wanted the cosmic story to help uh, bridge the gap and, and bring Thanos in. And James Gunn was familiar with the, the Guardians of the Galaxy. And he came in and said, yeah, I have this idea for those guys. And he liked it because it it is less tied to the rest of the universe. This could be your first Marvel Cinematic Universe film, and I don't think you're going to feel like you're missing out on anything. Because right? none of these characters know any of the characters in the Marvel Universe when this movie starts. Yeah, or even I, really when it ends. Yeah, and, and I like that. It's, 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 it's part of the same world, but it's shown to be independent of it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really well done. And frankly, the whole Abnett and Landing cosmic thing um, the the source material is great as well, so that that's a run that could use an omnibus edition going right from Annihilation through Nova into Annihilation Conquest, which is where the Guardians of the Galaxy spun out, War of the Kings, and ultimately the Thanos Imperative. And, and this is the area where I think they firmly said, we're going to Thanos and we're going Cosmic. Up until this point, they could have turned in different directions. But I think now that they said, you know, and maybe it was more or less, if this movie is a success, then we're doing that. Yeah, well, this is also the last one before the next Avengers, too, right? So this mm-hmm. was, this is their chance to get it lined up. But yeah, we also didn't really know much about Thanos' plan aside from the Infinity Gauntlet. I mean, all we knew last time is it, it looked like they were going to keep it closer to his motivation from the Infinity Gauntlet storyline. Because the first time you see his face is when someone says to attack Earth is to court death. And Thanos turns and smiles. And for the listeners who don't know Infinity Gauntlet, Thanos is in love with the personification of death in the Marvel Universe. So that story starts with him snapping his fingers with the Infinity Gauntlet to kill half of all life in the universe so that the dead outnumber the living in an attempt to win her favor. And then... You know, in Annihilation, he is killed by Drax, who, like we said, he had a very different purpose in the comics. He was a human being on the brink of death who was rebuilt specifically to turn him into a weapon to defeat Thanos. And he succeeds at the start of that, but then they have to bring Thanos back to life in the Thanos imperative, separating him from death. And I don't want to spoil that, but it it ends magnificently. So. Hmm. Okay, we'll leave it at that for that one. So, yeah. so we're we're definitely on a real high note now, and we're coming back to the Avengers, which had been such a huge success, and we get to Avengers Two: The Age of Ultron uh, on March first, two thousand fifteen. It's released and or May first. Oh, excuse me, yeah, May first. My mistake. Sorry. Uh, and certainly, the box office numbers bear out that it was a, a, another huge success. But I think critically, and let me see what we got here from uh, Rotten Tomatoes, 75% as opposed to 92% on the first Avengers movie. Uh, 
where is it? Hold on, I'm losing. Yeah, 92% on the first one. And then on Metacritic, we have 75. Oh, no, hold on, I'm looking at the wrong line. 66 as opposed to 69. So not a dramatic, not as dramatic a difference on that. But I think people got the movie, a movie they weren't expecting there. I think they were expecting it to be just more of the same. Uh, I do think comic fans were not totally enthralled with the way Ultron was portrayed. Mm -hmm. And we definitely got a different Quicksilver and surprising spoilers, a surprising death in that situation. Uh, But we did bring in the Scarlet Witch and we brought in the Vision. I think that was one of the things where the comic fans... Collective jaws dropped is when we saw the Vision realized on the big screen. Uh, you know, I, I think that there was a lot there, uh, and I enjoyed that movie. But it's another one that I enjoyed more in retrospect than I did when I first saw it. I liked it when I first saw it. I like it more now. Yeah, um, that it's another one that there are good merits to it. I know some fans were upset that. Ultron was the creation of Tony Stark instead of Hank Pym, but to me that makes more sense. Um, Certainly from the cinematic universe, the way it was presented, it makes more sense. Yeah, even in the comic universe, I think it would have. When when Hank Pym created Ultron, he was the world's leading biochemist, but he wasn't a roboticist. I don't think Stan Lee had a clear grasp of where the lines are between the sciences, even if they, they are blurry lines. Oh no, Stanley! If you were, if you were a, you know, and and everybody, almost every scientist in the Marvel universe is genius level, but if you were genius level in science, you knew all the sciences. It didn't yeah, matter right. whether you were, a, you know, and if you were a doctor, you could perform all surgeries. <laughs> you know, there, there was there there were no specialties in Stanley's scientific world. Yeah, and that's not limited to Stanley. That that's a, a Hollywood thing as well. But I think that did make more sense. I. I actually like the casting of James Spader as Ultron, but one of the criticisms that is often leveled at Joss Whedon is that a lot of his characters end up with a very similar voice. Which we talked about in the yeah. Phase 1 discussion. Yeah, and that that was coming out here. This this was not the Ultron I'm familiar with. He, he is a little too snarky and sarcastic. And 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 I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue that point a little bit, just mildly, to say the way he's presented in the cinematic universe is he's an offshoot of Tony Stark's personality, and therefore he would have the snarky voice. So there is a in-story explanation for that. It's just different from what we've seen in the comics. Yeah, I agree. It, the change didn't come out of nowhere, but it is a change. Um, the other thing that I always wonder, I know Joss Whedon stepped away from the Marvel Universe after this because he wasn't really satisfied with the way it played out. He was told the movie had to be edited to hit a certain runtime, and no, the director's cut is never going to be released. But apparently there's about 40 minutes of footage for this one that we're not that is not going to see the light of day. And I do hope they rethink the... Uh, the uh What's it called the the not releasing the editor the director's cuts on this and and Iron Man and uh, Hulk rather in particular because I would I for one would like to see it I don't think you have to make it as a huge blockbuster release because you're probably not going to get the dollars from the discs that you would hope for if you try and make it into a big deal but if you quietly release edit you know director's cuts or uh, 
Edward Norton cuts on these movies, I do think that the diehard fans will do enough to make it profitable for them. That's true. But then you, you might run the risk of the reaction that Batman v Superman got, where a lot of people, once you see the the Snyder Cut, the Ultimate Edition, it's like, yeah, why wasn't this the theatrical edition? It is undeniably better. I don't know anyone who has said that the theatrical edition of Batman v Superman was better than it in a serious way. I just know one person who says, well, both are terrible, so the shorter one is better because you don't have to watch as much. But Frankly, I'm kind of in that school. I, I, I think I think the movie was a, a, an unmitigated failure. And uh, I... I uh, what's what's the expression lipstick on a pig i yeah. that's that's kind of where i go with it so and i don't want to get into a debate on that if if your opinion is significantly better than that but i just yeah. feel like i feel like they they are uh both versions are difficult for me to get through put it that way and i'm not yeah. just not a fan on either yeah i i'm pretty much in that boat i just think that the the, the extended cut is the superior version I'll, I'll grant you that because I, so I saw the original. I've seen each once. I've seen the original version in the theater, and I saw the extended cut at people's uh, suggestion that it was superior. And I, I admit it was a little more cohesive, uh, but it, it still did not do it for me. But that said, uh, Avengers 2, or Avengers Age of Ultron, I don't think there actually is a 2 in the title technically. Uh, I, you know, I enjoyed it, like I said. I, I enjoy it more... Much like, you know, there's the third movie in in, uh, in in Phase 2 that I actually enjoy more on home video than I did in the theater. Uh, but this one I didn't walk out of feeling necessarily disappointed with. I enjoyed it in the theater. I just didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed the first Avengers. And that was probably the only level of disappointment I had with it. Yeah, I'm the same. I enjoyed it. I, I wish I could see that Joss Whedon's cut because I think it would be better. But it... It's it's a very enjoyable movie that is still the weakest of the Avengers branded movies. So of those that have the Avengers in the title, this is the weakest to date. And now the budget is significantly higher than we've seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. $365 million. Uh, pretty much, kind of, I, I, I haven't done the math on it, but I would say probably double what our average is. And probably a lot of that is actor's salaries that factored in, uh, and probably Joss Whedon's salary for that matter as well, in addition to the special effects budget. And probably, I don't know how much they factor in the uh, public relations advertising budget into that, uh, but there's, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot spent on that as well. Now, in the U.S. and Canada, the, the gross was $459 million, but worldwide... The gross was nine hundred and forty-six million. So this was one point four million dollars, one point four billion dollars, excuse me. Uh, and it is ranked all-time number sixteen in the United States and number eight worldwide. So certainly it was a success financially. Oh yeah, yeah. There's no question about that. It's Marvel is going to have to start churning out. I mean, we haven't seen one bomb yet, and it's going to take, I think, two or three bombs before they, they start to really lose money on them. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and the next movie was now, this is something I had kind of called for for a long time. I had said, why do you need to 
extend yourself to the point where you're risking financial doom <laughs> every time you make a movie? Why does everything have to be a big bl budget blockbuster? Why can't you make a smaller movie where you're allowed to have smaller expectations? And therefore, if the bud, you know, if your uh, box office take isn't as high, you could still be a success. Uh, and I've had people argue in financial terms that are beyond my accounting knowledge as to why that really isn't a successful formula and that they're better off taking a chance on a big budget movie than that. Uh, and I accept that those people are more knowledgeable in finances than I am, and I just accept that they're accurate. I just can't get a grasp on it, to be totally honest with you. Uh, but we came out with Ant-Man, which is another risky thought to, to come out with this movie, but it's also a, you know, a core initial character of the Marvel Universe that they want to work in. They did work in the updated version by doing it as... Uh, Scott Lang and having there be a historical Hank Pym Ant-Man who we really haven't seen, but we know he's out there, uh, who's older now. But the budget on this was only $109 million, which certainly I could retire for a very, very long time on $109 million. I don't want to make it sound like it's not much money, but compared to the budgets of these other movies, it is more modest. Uh, and I do think it's a little risky because now you're, now you're playing on your brand. Uh, my, my thoughts of going with the lower budget movie were more, more or less before you had a brand. Now you have one. So you are risking that if it's an unsuccessful movie, you could taint future bigger efforts. But this was not unsuccessful. This was, you know, a, a well-accepted movie. I remember my take on it when it first came out was I was just concerned that possibly the comedy of it was a little over the top. Uh, with Paul Rudd in the lead, and uh, I don't remember who played his friend Luis, but his character was very much comic relief. Uh, and I thought it might not age well. That was really, I, I enjoyed it a lot, but I thought, you know, five years from now, if I see this, I might think, eh, it's kind of aging badly. So far, it told, it's held up. I've watched it, uh, you know, repeatedly, and it's been okay. What was your take on Ant-Man? Yeah, I was surprised by how well. I had some of the same concerns you have, but it's it's still working for me when I rewatch it, which is, again, a surprise. This is another one where famously Edgar Wright had been trying to make Ant-Man for a long time as writer-director, but his vision for it wasn't compatible with some of the plot elements that they needed for the big picture. Mm -hmm. So he stepped away and they brought in Peyton Reed, who lobbied to direct the first two Fantastic Four movies for Fox that ended up being directed by Tim Story. Fox didn't work with him because they felt he didn't understand how to make a superhero movie with doses of comedy. So they brought in Tim Story and we got what we got and this is where Peyton Reed went mm -hmm. down the road. Oh, I think I think I think it it worked out to, to it worked out to Marvel's advantage. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I, I one thing I've seen lately uh, that I find interesting is uh, if one of the the comedy elements that they use in this movie is to have uh, his name is Luis, right? The the friend yeah, I think um, they have him like retell a story, but while he's telling it, you know, you're you're hearing the entire story through his voice, but you're seeing the characters he's talking about mouthing the words that he's using, and it it is played to very good comic effect uh, throughout this movie, and eventually in Ant Man two they they play the same or Ant Man and the Wasp they play the same uh, the the same routine, and it's it's still effective. And I've seen some lobbying now that what they would love to do is to see a recap of the Marvel Cinematic Universe to date going into Endgame with Luis giving the 
the, the narration for it in, yeah, in that well, manner. Yeah, and it would be the same as like the, the reveal for uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. I don't know if you've seen that one. But that actually has Luis doing a recap of the entire cinematic universe to date, saying what's going on, and then you cut back, and it's not Luis saying it. It's the actor playing Luis sitting next to Paul Rudd and next to Michelle Pfeiffer, and she goes, okay, I'm in. So that's how they announced her casting. Okay, I'm going to have to find that. I've never seen it, and I'm sure I would find it very amusing. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I thought this, you know, again, smaller scale, uh, which, again, is something I had talked about doing for a long time, and I, I was always shocked that they didn't. So I was kind of, I, I kind of embraced this a little bit on that level. Uh, but, you know, it was it was fairly successful. It made $180 million domestically, $339 million worldwide. So, you know, we're, we're slightly over half a billion dollars on this one, and with $109 million budget, that's I think that's a success. Uh, and it's, it was enough of a success to warrant a sequel. Uh, so... You know, I think we're good there, and and that's kind of a, a a strange place to end phase two, because instead of ending it on a on a bang like we did phase one with the Avengers, we ended it more on a uh, uh, you know what what I like to call a palate cleanser. After after uh, Age of Ultron, which was the bang, we have a smaller scale movie with a little bit more com- comedic element to just kind of tone it down a little bit, so that you're not going into phase three the way you went into phase two, just expecting more of the same. Yeah, it, it, it does shift. And there had been a little more comedy between this and Guardians of the Galaxy, which you should mention also had a very strong comedic bent to it. Absolutely. Not not quite to the, the Ant-Man levels. But, yeah, this worked really well. I mean, I, I listened to Writing Excuses, and they talk about, you know, for the stakes... They have to be emotional stakes, and you have to care about the characters. This came out the same summer as Josh Trank's Fantastic Four, the third Fantastic Four movie by Fox. And in that one, the entire planet Earth is at stake. In this one, a little girl and her bedroom are at stake. Yes, much smaller scale. Yeah, but I care way more about that little girl and her bedroom. Like, I was literally worried about, you know, is she going to be able to sleep here tonight? Is the room going to be too damaged for that? Was a bigger concern than, oh, the entire planet's at risk in Trank's FF. Mm-hmm. All right, that's yeah, very true. <laughs> I agree with that, that thought process. So that brings us to an end of Phase 2 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that'll bring us to an end of this episode of Is It Yours? Uh, we're going to continue on this run in two weeks when Blaine and I will be back to talk about Phase 3 and our anticipation for the end of Phase 3 and beyond. Uh, So we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks again, Blaine, for making the time to come and talk to me, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? I am Iron Man. I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. I have an army. We have a Hulk. I am a god, you dull creature, and I will not be bullied by that. Puny god. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. Big man in a suit of armor. Take that off, what are you? 
genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. What is and always will be my greatest creation is you. You're a laboratory experiment, Rogers. Everything special about you came out of a bottle. We need a plan of attack. I have a plan. Attack. I can't lead a mission when the people I'm leading have missions of their own. Nobody spills the secrets because nobody knows them all. Baskin Robbins always finds out. He's my friend. So was I. An empire toppled by its enemies can rise again. But one which crumbles from within, that's dead. Forever. I'll kill you and everybody you love. You needed to kill me, but you can't. I know, I tried. I put a bullet in my mouth and the other guy spit it out. I want the big one. If you can make God bleed, then people will cease to believe in him. And there will be blood in the water. And the sharks will come. I recognize the council has made a decision. But given that it's a stupid-ass decision, I've elected to ignore it. I tried to play ball with these ass clowns. F*** you, Mr. Stark. F*** you, buddy. Language. Nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I would catch it. Underoos! Romamu, I've come to bargain. The city is flying. We're fighting an army of robots. And I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes sense. Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave! With a box of scraps! Return to me again empty-handed. And I will bathe the Starways in your blood. I can't control their fear. Only my own. Because if we can't protect the Earth, you can be damn well sure we'll avenge it. If you step out that door, you are an Avenger. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it. I could do this all day. Soldiers trust each other. That's what makes it an army. Not a bunch of guys running around shooting guns. Last time I trusted someone, I lost an eye. If you want to stay ahead of me, Mr. Secretary. You need to keep both eyes open. Excelsior. Your ancestors called it magic, and you call it science. Well, I come from a place where they're one and the same thing. Dormammu, I've come to bargain. There's nothing more reassuring than realizing that the world is crazier than you are. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no. You move. We are...